When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Slate Money is sponsored by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size and receive a trunk full of great-looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep with no ongoing subscription and shipping is free. Go to trunkclub.com slash money. And buy ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code MONEY. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the White Collar Wine edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. This week, we are devoting the entire episode to the trials and tribulations of the rich and privileged and how it's so hard to be, you know, a rich person in America these days working for a living and that kind of thing. I am joined by Kathy O'Neill, the blogger at mathbabe.org, and Kathy is not with us in person. Where are you, Kathy? I am in Oakland, California. I like Oakland, California. It's one of my it's one of my new favorite cities. It's also the home to the Fusion Bay Area Bureau, which is a fun place to have a bureau. I was there a couple of weeks ago. And of course, Jordan Weissman. 
Happy to be here. Hello, Jordan. Jordan is the Moneybox columnist here at Slate, and he is going to be talking about interns. I am going to be talking about a fabulous uh, law, Yale Law School commencement address, believe it or not. But first, Kathy, we have to talk about this thing that came out last week because everyone's been talking about it. Yeah, we're, uh, it's about the Amazon culture, uh, the work culture at Amazon. Uh, the, my favorite quote from the article. Which the article Times, are we talking about? The article which has, which I'm sure every single one of our listeners has been has seen on Twitter and Facebook about 47 times at this point. <laughs> yeah, it was in the New York Times. Um, best quote: Amazon is where overachievers go to feel bad about themselves. Um, the most, about, the most commented of- on article in New York Times history. Really? Yeah, I think that's almost 6,000 comments. Jesus. It's crazy. They, they, they already have one article which they've just put together from the comments alone, and I think another one or two are coming. Um, what did you think of the article, Kathy? We'll definitely talk about how unique it is. Um, let me just first just touch on what the article actually says, just in case you guys have been living under a rock. Um, it's, a, it's about the sort of combative, competitive, and brutal environment for the not the warehouse workers of Amazon, but the white collar sort of corporate workers of Amazon, the people that are in charge of making sure that search functions work and that all the the packages get to people's houses on time. Uh, We hear things about working late, annual ranking of employees and the culling of the worst em- uh, worst employees ranking which uh, i notorious. prefer culling i like culling as a fr- the culling of the amazonians the, the, the idea that every <laughs> year the bottom 10 percent of the company just gets kicked out because you know we only want the very best and if yeah. you're in the bottom 10 percent of the company you can't be the very best it's it's just brutal it creates all manner of poisonous internal politics yeah and the the main thing i think there's actually two main things that I got from the article first is that it's got this very brutal, very meritocratic uh, culture where you're supposed to be the best and you're supposed to compete, compete, compete. And when you hit the wall, you're supposed to climb the wall. That's another great quote from the article. Um, And the other aspect of it that I think is interesting, and we can talk about it in the larger scheme of white collar jobs, is the extent to which sort of uh, people are tracked with data and sort of algorithmically ranked because I think Amazon is kind of a few steps ahead of most other companies in terms of how much data it collects about people's performance and what they do with that data. So I just want to add, I think the, at least when I read it, the, the thing that got to me most, and I think really is what took this from an article about just a sort of competitive workplace to a, a truly dystopian seeming one, at least in the, way, the New York Times presentation, were the parts about the way they treated mothers and people who are sick or had cancer, basically people who were caring for a loved one or themselves became ill, uh, ended up getting culled or, you know, facing uh, these uh, or getting really poor performance rankings and kind of nudged out. Um, and it wasn't even, I mean, it was yeah. those people, but it was also the median tenure at Amazon is like one year or something. Like there's the, there's mm-hmm. this huge um, rate of people sure. who come in and yeah. just can't can't even basically and then leave, which <laughs> which is you know I mean there was a lot of pushback to the article. We should mention this. A lot of people in Amazon said this is not the company I work for. I don't recognize this company. You know, anecdotally, the, the, the article is based on anecdote, and you can more or less do anything you like with anecdote. It, it did seem that it was putting its thumb on the scales in a couple of places. Uh, so, you know, it's not necessarily that you can take it at face value, but the fact is that 
in Amazon and in a bunch of other sort of high-intensity workplaces where people work long hours, it's clearly not, you know, a relaxing, chilled-out, happy place to work. No, and you could see by the number of comments and the response that it resonated with people. I mean, it's kind of this libertarian, Ayn Randian world where, like, only the the most successful, smartest, and most capable and competitive survive. And people, I feel like, people are feeling like that's kind of what's happening to their workplaces, if not has already happened. It's kind of like they're expected to become a cult member in their their employer's cult. And on the flip side of it, a lot of people who like working at Amazon like it because of this very um, aspect of it, that it, it seems like more than just a job. It's kind of like a whole way of thinking about it. They get addicted to the idea of, of succeeding in that environment. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that companies uh, succeed is because they convince their workers it's this is more than just a job. So can we talk about how unique this actually is, how different Amazon is from everywhere else? Because... You know, I think a lot of people on Wall Street, for instance, who read this article and in law firms seem to react by thinking, oh, this isn't quite so much worse than what we deal with. And even people in the tech sector said, you know, Google and Facebook put a happier face on things and don't necessarily do like the culling, um, which used to be actually a very widespread practice in corporate America. Uh, you know, Jack Welch popularized it with GE in the 80s. You fire the bottom 10% of your workforce. Um, it's kind of fallen out of favor. But the, the sense that a lot of these places just demand kind of a, an extra human effort, even if they give you free lunch, the difference is that uh, Amazon doesn't give you free lunch. I mean, is do you think that there really is anything here that's truly above and beyond what ha that happens it's, elsewhere? It's clearly not. I mean, yeah. the Silicon Valley in particular fetishizes the sort of, you know, 25-hour workdays at startups and the way that you're working, working, working all the time. And people look at places like Amazon as, well, this isn't as much work as it would be if I was doing my own startup, which, is, which for a lot of these people really is the sort of alternative for them. I also like to say in terms of like the work-life balance, that is clearly not balanced whatsoever, according to this article. And there's very few women at the top at Amazon. Um, you know, we've talked on the on this podcast before about, you know, free women freezing eggs and delaying childbirth. So if you look at that as a sort of broad statistic in terms of whether this is a commonplace thing to put aside your family planning in order to focus on work. I think the the statistics are in and it's true. This is a very widespread practice. So another thing I'm curious about and you know, I don't really have a fully formed opinion on, but I'm curious to hear yours, Kathy, is is the data aspect of this. Because Amazon prides itself on having all of these numbers um, and being able to precisely rank people by, with all this different input. And I mean, how, after a point when you just have so many metrics, I mean, can they really be reliable after, doesn't it become noise after a bit? Or, I mean... Well, here's the thing. There's two questions. First one is whether those numbers and uh, by all accounts, they get people at their uh, performance uh, reviews get printouts, long printouts of, of numbers de describing what kind of numbers they're in charge of. Um, so the, the first question is whether they're meaningful numbers. And they, I'm guessing they are, like sales numbers are typically meaningful. The real important question, though, for the uh, sake of individual assessment is whether the individual's actually have power over those numbers. So that's 
that kind of causality, like, can you actually move those numbers if you were a good worker? That's the question that most employees probably don't even have enough information to argue for or against. So the thing I worry about when I hear about um, uh, employees being measured against numbers is to what extent do they really control those numbers? Well, there are some and things are they, they do control, held? which is things like how much you work at Bloomberg famously, when you log in and log out and you come into the office, when you badge into the office, you're, you know, counted and it measures like how long you're in the office every day. And if you're not in the office for a long time every day, people start, you know, asking questions and those things. you can And that's control. a great point. Felix, that's an incredibly good point because that is kind of the one quantitative thing you can absolutely control. And it's probably why people work all the time, because they want to be seen as doing all they can to control what they can. But it gets out of whack after a while. So, um, so Kathy, there was a response, actually, from the famously reclusive Jeff Bezos, the owner, or at least the CEO of Amazon.com, who normally refuses to comment on any kind of article. But this time he came out and said something. Yeah, he, he said he didn't recognize the Amazon that was in the New York Times article. Now, the, what's funny about that is, well, first of all, he used to work at D.E. Shaw, where I used to work. And a lot of the things that came up in the article reminded me of D.E. Shaw. So it, at the f- sort of basic level, I'm like, really? You started this, you know? And also, there was a, a few other articles that followed on this that talked about his own sort of, they quoted him in previous years talking about the sort of data centeredness of of assessments and culling so it it does seem inconsistent that he would think that all these these uh, processes were in place but that it was a really fun place to work it just doesn't make sense to me well he did he did hire jay carney from the white house to be his press flag so i i can easily imagine that this was you know what jay carney told him to say and maybe not his Ah. most heartfelt you know truth i think a lot of founders really, you know, put huge amounts of work into their company, you know, as I was saying about startups, and then they expect all of their employees to feel just as loyal to the company and work just as hard for the company. And I think that's maybe um, not particularly, what's the word? Reasonable. Reasonable. Realistic. Realistic. <laughs> Realistic. Reasonable. Um, Humane. But, but now, um, Slate Money is sponsored this week by Trunk Club. You've heard me rave about Trunk Club before. This is a genuine rave. I think they're awesome. It's a way of shopping without shopping. It's a way of getting fabulous clothes in a trunk delivered to your door for free. The trunk is free. The shipping is free. There's no subscription. There's nothing like that. You just talk to a human being who finds out what kind of things you like. That person will ship you a trunk of clothes that fit perfectly, make you look awesome. And then if you don't like any of them or whatever, you know, you don't need to buy any of them. But if there's anything in there which fits you and you think it's great, you just don't send it back. The rest of it you send back in the trunk. That's free too. They'll send, you know, the UPS guy to come pick it up. And you've just painlessly bought clothes. It's the most convenient, painless, and easy way to look awesome. So go to trunkclub.com slash money, and you can look awesome this fall. So one more time, that's trunkclub.com slash money. And the other end of the work spectrum is 
the interns. They haven't even graduated from college yet, and already they're being put to work. What's going on with them? Well, some have. <laughs> some have, which is kind of part of the problem. But yeah, right. I mean, the unpaid internship has, for a few years now, been sort of a rite of passage for people who want to go into glamour industries. Um, and when I say glamour Amazon industries... Amazon is not a glamour industry. No. Well, well, we'll talk about that in a second, actually. But um, yeah, so, you know, when I say glamour, what I mean, journalism, the movies, fashion, things like that, right? Um, and when I say journalism, I'm really talking about magazine journalism. Actually, newspapers historically have always paid their interns. But, you know, there's been a, a controversy about them for a while. And then in the last couple of years, there's been a big legal controversy. There was a very famous lawsuit brought by a group of unpaid interns against uh, Fox. They had worked on the set of The Black Swan. Uh, which you may remember, Natalie Portman won an Oscar, yada, yada. Um, and some of them also had worked on the corporate side. And basically, they just said, look, we were we were workers. Uh, we deserved to be paid. And they went to court, and um, they ended up winning a judgment in the, on the trial level and uh, kind of ushered in a number of other lawsuits. And it seemed for a while that the unpaid internship might be sort of in danger of disappearing. Oh, um, no. Oh, no. And what, because companies, magazine companies, uh, entertainment companies, they started just settling. They wanted to, you know, get rid of this problem. Uh, however, things kind of turned around recently when the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit weighed in. And it's a complicated ruling. I can get into the guts of it. Please if, don't. I, I was going to say, I can if you really, really want me to. But the gist of it was twofold. One, basically, it said there are circumstances when it, where an intern can go unpaid. And it's sort of a hard thing to distinguish. And it's very individualized. You kind of have to take a case-by-case -case basis. More importantly, they made it more or less impossible to ever bring a class action suit. So making it very unprofitable for lawyers to bring these cases. But uh, put the lead, put, putting the sort of legal yeah. status of these cases to one side, is it, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who want these internships. Yeah. And obviously, there's companies who feel like it makes sense for them to offer these internships. Is there a good reason, Kathy, why these, you know, consenting adults shouldn't do this thing? Well, there's a bad reason and there's a good reason. I mean, let me say, there's an argument for and against. The argument um, against this happening is sort of a class division argument that I think Jordan has more examples of this, but you have only some people can afford to take the summer off or whatever. Maybe usually it's about three or four months of an internship and not get paid. So what happens is the people that are privileged enough to, to get the internships are the ones that, you know, they get to meet the fancy people and they, they reap the benefits. Um, they don't need the money. The argument for it, is, which I don't understand the legal argument against it, so Jordan will have to explain it to me, is this is just a contract. Like they, people know what they're getting into. They're not, they know they're not getting paid. So what is the problem? Yeah, so I mean, it feels like everyone should be able to enter into a contract if they, if they know what it is. So I, I want to address the class issue because it's actually, the reality is actually kind of surprising. There isn't a ton of great data on who unpaid interns are. Um, one of the sources is this company called Intern Bridge, though, and they're probably the best there is. And if you look at their numbers, unpaid interns actually skew poorer on the whole. Um, than paid interns. Than paid interns. And I think that probably doesn't, that's probably not the case in some of these glamour industries. But if you look across the whole economy and all the companies offer unpaid internships, they tend to be a little less high, in, or they tend to be lower income. And why is that? Well, paid internships tend to be at fairly, like, 
fairly successful uh, big name companies. We're talking big consulting firms. We're talking about banks. We're talking about, I'm sure, you know, Google and Amazon interns get paid. Um, So those opportunities go to kids at Ivy League schools, whatnot. And it's the poorer kids, you know, at, at, you know, state you or whatnot, who end up stuck. Not only, you know, they come from a less wealthy family, but they also stuck not get stuck not making any money for their summer or for their three months after graduation. That said, I think some of these really, really um, kind of involved unpaid internships where they expect you to, you know, be on set constantly, it makes it difficult to take another job. Yeah, those are those are probably going to be restricted not only uh, to wealthy kids, not only because those are the kids who can afford to do it, but also through connections and whatnot. And Kathy, I want to come back to your question about why this might be a legal argument about why they un- unpaid internships should be banned. Uh, it's pretty simple. It's the idea is these people do work and should be covered under the National Labor Relations Act that they are required to be paid minimum wage, that they are workers and employees. Um, Jordan, and- do you have an opinion on on the thing? I don't know how often it still happens, but it used to yeah. happen every like year, once or twice a year that you would get Vogue or some very glamorous uh, employer would literally auction off an internship at some charity auction, and then someone would pay like forty thousand dollars so that their kid could get the internship. Yeah, I mean it's it's gross. I mean that's the I, let me I, full disclosure, right? Um, I my first job was as an unpaid intern. Um, I and it was like not I did not get it in like a particularly uh, nice way. Like I was total nepotism case. My uncle worked at Billboard or in the Billboard company. And he got my resume in front of the editor there. And as a freshman in college, I ended up opening mail at Billboard for a while until I convinced some, another editor with a sister publication to start letting me write features for them. And that's how I got my first professional clips. You know, I look back on that and at the time. It was an enormous leg up and I appreciated all the opportunities. Was it right? I, you know, it, Probably not. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I, I, I have in looking, I can't really justify that process. I, I like to think that I was qualified anyway, but I don't know. I would have gotten in front of them had it not been for this weird, you know, back scratching economy in magazine land. I just think it's a kind of a funny thing that we're both trying to protect interns from being exploited. And we also think that interns in at least some cases are getting like freebies. They're getting, they're getting an advantage. So it's kind of, a, we, I guess maybe it depends on the internship, but it seems like we're having it both ways, whether interns are the victims or, or well, not. Well, you know, I benefited. I, I feel like, you know, a lot of these internships would still exist if they were minimum wage, if they were paid minimum wage. I really do. And you saw, you've seen a lot of magazines move to paying their interns at least minimum wage uh, because of these lawsuits. They didn't just eliminate the programs, in, in, at least at many companies. So I feel like it could be cleaned up. I also feel like somebody should be paid to open mail. I mean, that's just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably, <laughs> just, possibly more so than being paid to write. I mean, like, as if you're in college, like, if you're just opening mail, you're just doing grunt work. Whereas if you're writing articles, yeah. you're getting a, a, you are getting some sort of learning experience out of it. I'm, we're going to come back to this idea of hereditary privilege in a second. First, I need to tell you about our sponsor... We are also sponsored this week by ZipRecruiter. This is the way to find those people who will work 2,400 hours a year and make your company amazing because there doesn't seem to be any shortage of these people. You know, Amazon has lots of people working for it and can always get more. So how do they hire? How should you hire? You go to ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. That's how you do it. It's really smart because if you have a job that you want filled, 
You don't want to be going from job site to job site to job site, copying and pasting the same thing. You just want to do it once. And ZipRecruiter will do that. It will cross-post your job ad to more than 100 different job sites with a single click. They have over 4 million resumes that they can try and match. They have been used by over 400,000 businesses. This is a big thing. It's an awesome thing. So try it out for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. And now I need to really urge you all to read this fantastic speech by Daniel Markovitz, which has been going around in relation to this Amazon story, amongst other things. This is his Yale Law School commencement address earlier this summer. And he says a bunch of interesting things about the graduates of Yale Law. One of the things which he says uh, is is that the graduates of Yale Law are a little bit like Jordan Weissman with his uncle at Billboard magazine, that they <laughs> they come from very rich and privileged families. And in turn, their kids are going to be very rich and privileged. And that there's this nominal meritocracy going on where it's the most academically gifted kids who get into Yale Law, the fact is that how academically gifted you are as measured is entirely hereditary at this point. And we have simply replaced one set of, you know, class-based hereditary, you know, ruling class with another one. So he, you know, he's, he's not saying that this is necessarily a worse situation than when it was just like the landed gentry. But he is saying, and this is, I think, what we're talking about in the episode, that the big difference between today's ruling elite, hereditary ruling elite, and yesterday's hereditary ruling elite is that today's hereditary ruling elite work a hell of a lot more. Yeah, and and they think that they deserve everything that they have, and they're invisible to what they sort of inherited, um, because they work so hard. And it goes straight back to the Amazon thing where you're like, if I can prove that I'm just working my ass off and ignoring my children, then all this stuff I deserve. On the one hand, you know, it may or may not be deserved. But on the other hand, they can't seem to get out of it. As He says, I want to quote a little bit of this speech because it really is fantastic. In 1962, the American Bar Association could confidently declare that there are approximately 1,300 fee-earning hours per year available to the normal lawyer. Today, by contrast, a major law firm pronounces with equal confidence that a quota of 2,400 billable hours is not unreasonable. And 2,400 hours a year is seven hours a day, six days a week, no vacation, no sick days. He says... Even elite law professors, <laughs> tenured law professors, work hours that would have been thought unimaginable because degrading by an earlier American elite that constituted itself self-consciously as a leisure class. We are, and when I say we, I mean they, I mean the, the people running this country genuinely work really, really hard. And is that a good thing, Kathy? I mean, is that, I'm, should I'm gonna, we be happy I'm gonna, about this? Well, I'm not happy about this. <laughs> I mean, for a few reasons. But I would argue that one of the reasons we're all working so hard is because we're insecure. I mean, in the previous hereditary elite, we had this kind of like, oh, well, I have enough money, so I know I'm here. 
Whereas now we can think of it as we're all under the Amazon ranking regime, except just not the Amazon ranking regime. It's the sort of society wide ranking machine. I mean, we should think of getting into college, you know, getting into even getting into high school, if you're in New York City, but then getting into law school, everything at this point is ranked. And everybody's competing with everyone else. And we're all datafied, we have data up our razoos. And we're all trying to compete for the number one rank. And that's why we always have to work this hard. It's just exactly the same thing. And it's a negative sum game. This is what Markovitz says. And I think this is absolutely right. He says, because you're not spending money, because you're spending time, because you're spending labor, he says, administering one's capacities in this instrumental mode is quite literally to use oneself up. He's, you know, he, and how do you get out of that? It, it, you have to declare an armistice. He, he and, says, like, what would that he look says, like? He says, the choices that you've faced again and again over the course of your lives have trained you to measuring your life in this way as with coffee spoons. That's the, that's the, <laughs> the proof Rockian, <laughs> you know, like um, data, you know, inescapability of like the, the quantified career. And it starts at a very, very early age. I mean, it starts in, you know, middle school, if not earlier. Yes. How do you get an armistice? I think, I don't know if you if you ever can, but if there ever was going to be a pushback, I think it was going to come from kind of people who want time for family and frankly, more equity for women in the workplace. And that's what we've started to see with push for more forgiving leave and such, because the the really, I mean, obviously, the fact that everyone is overworked and miserable sucks. But one of the really awful things about this system we've created is it kind of prevents women especially from getting to the top of their professions because it's so family unfriendly and it's even if you take a little time off just to have a kid and take a few months you know to to care for them as a baby it can set your career back significantly and this is why the the you know feminist women can women balance work and life thing is really not a feminist issue at all it's for everyone like it's just the men have somehow been cult- acculturated into not complaining about this although it's been happening to men even more than it's been happening to women that they haven't been able to balance the two um, and if women do manage to persuade the corporate world that a bit more freedom to live our lives is a good thing then that's going to benefit everyone yeah absolutely i mean that's and you know i think actually that's why these issues are kind of important society-wide you know it's not just about you know rich women wanting to have it all or uh you know rich people being able to balance their lives a little better i think that you can hope that there'll be a little bit more of a maybe a kind of cascade effect where if the people at the top of society realize maybe what they're doing is crazy there won't be an expectation that everyone just work themselves to the bone there'll be a little bit more sense that but is, he, is that is that yeah. rational in in like a globalized society where right now american tech companies are the most successful companies in the world american law firms are the most successful law firms in the world there does seem to be some kind of non-trivial correlation between the amount that these super sophisticated workforces work and the success of the companies that they work for. I think that's a fair point. I also wonder how much of it is correlation and causation. Um, There's, you know, sometimes companies come up with great ideas and and execution's part of it, but also they're just the first onto the idea and to get the the general concept right. And, you know, America... I like like the just sitting back and letting you guys make the feminist argument. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry. Here, let me shut up. I do want to... Let me shut up for a second. I want to jump in and say um, that 
you know, number one, if we all have amazing gadgets, but we're all miserable, then that isn't really a success. Um, and I do want to say that Markovitz in his, his speech did a really good job of explaining this um, kind of uh, comp competition that's sort of uh, negative for the people in it in this top 1%. But he also made a really important point that this is not really working for society as a whole. Um, the rat race that the elite get into ma makes them miserable, but it also separates them from the rest of the world. And it doesn't work for society. So he told them they're not going to have a lot of sympathy from the rest of the world, um, but that they should think about how to make the whole system better. And I and he didn't really supply um, a formula, an answer for that. But I do think that's an important point to bring up. It's not just that we cry for these elites working too hard, but we ask them, how do we as a whole make this this work? You know, I, I, I doubt this will ever happen, but I, I wonder if, you know, a one solution might be to push a Japan style maximum work week type thing or, you know, have, have have stricter standards about who's covered by overtime and things along those lines. I mean, there might be there might be ways to legislate an armistice. I don't know. OK, we are also sponsored this week by Harry's, my favorite razor company. They own an entire factory in Germany, which just makes razors, German manufactured razors. And they're cheap because they're not ripping you off. They're just a wonderful way of getting awesome razors for cheap. So they have a starter pack. It's $15, which includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of shave cream or shave gel. And because I am awesome, I am getting you $5 off. This is nothing. $15 for this starter pack is nothing. You can get it for 10 bucks because if you go to harrys.com slash money, you will get $5 off at checkout. So that's a $10 set. And once you start using Harry's, you will not stop using Harry's because it's just an awesome thing. It's exactly just as good, if not better than whatever razor you're using right now, except it's much more convenient because it comes straight to your door. And it's a lot cheaper. The you know lower profit margins for them, cheaper shaving for us. Harry's.com slash money. And on to the numbers round. Kathy, what's your number? Oh, my number is um, ridiculous because um, everything about the Ashley Madison uh, data hack is ridiculous. So I like thinking about it. Um, there was an upshot in the New York Times that it was, was sort of thinking about whether the Ashley Madison data dump was actually going to stimulate the economy. And the idea was there's going to be a bunch of extra divorces uh, stemming from that. Uh, so the number itself is 800,000, which was, um, I think, a very high uh, estimate, uh, eyeball estimate for how many more divorces we're going to have because the Ashley Madison data was divulged. I, I, I think that and is the, way high. I think, yeah, there's, there's going to be much, much. I'm wondering how that. we could track that. I, I'm, my, my mind is spinning. Felix, I have a number now, though. You, what's, what's your number, Jordan? I got a number. Uh, my number is 42%. That's what Donald Trump says is the real unemployment rate. Um, not 5.5% or whatever the BLS most recently 42 said. 42% of... 42% is what he says the real... How does, how does he arrive at this number? So he said he saw it on a, a graph somewhere. Um, oh, it was a on a graph? But I, I went and tracked it down. You and found the graph. I fa well, you should send it to him so that he knows what the source of his number is. It's not actually... Um, I couldn't find a graph specifically, but it seems to have originated with David Stockman, who's like... Um, he's a former OMB director in the Reagan administration. Now he kind of runs around as this like 
weird prophet of doom telling how like United States is going to fall apart and the crash, the stock market's going to crash. And basically, he did this thing where he took all of the people who are not working for whatever reason, who are like between the ages of 16 and 68. And if they weren't working, they were unemployed, more or less. I'm, at, I'm simplifying his, his method a little bit. It has to do with labor hours offered. But that was, so this is his definition. If you're a housewife and or a student or a uh, disabled person and not working. Or you're, if you're in jail. Perhaps. Or if you're in jail, perhaps. <laughs> you are not, you are unemployed by his definition, um, which obviously is not how we typically define unemployed. We define it as, people who want a job but do not have one and are looking for it. It's still an interesting statistic, though. Well, it's it, saying it, almost it, half well, I mean, I believe there's working. this statistic called the employment to population ratio, which more or less does that <laughs> job for you. You exactly. don't really want to rebrand that statistic as unemployment. They're two different things. Yes. Well, you do want to include people in the right age bracket. But yes, okay. this is true. Um, My number is 800,000, and I'm going to um, foreshadow next week's slate money because i'm rather excited next week we're going to have suresh naidu in and we're going to have a whole episode on the economics of immigration but my number is eight hundred thousand because germany announced this week that it is going to accept eight hundred thousand migrants and refugees just this year which is an absolutely astonishing number and that's just germany and, you know, other countries have more and other countries like the UK have much less. But Wait, what was the number 800, again? 800,000. So we actually have the same number for the first time. Wait. Oh, wow. Wait, was, was your... Yeah. <laughs> Hers is the 800,000 divorces. Uh, I, thought yours, 800, oh, wait, you had, I thought yours was 880,000 divorces. It's 800,000. No, 800,000 Oh, my God. Divorces. We have the same number. It's two entirely different things. But we have... I don't think these are exactly the same thing. The number of divorces and the number of migrants that Germany is... is Serendipity. Wow. We have the same number. Um, Jordan, can you come up with an 800... No, never mind. I'll work on it. Give me back. I'll take <laughs> okay. a second here. That, that is it. That is almost it for this week, but I need to do one last thing, which is long overdue because of a hilarious um, failure of communication between me and Carol Loomis. Now, Carol Loomis is one of the greatest journalists in the history of journalism. I'm perfectly happy to come (laughs) out and say this. She is a true, genuine hero of mine. And if you haven't listened to it, I highly highly recommend that you listen to the long-form podcast interview with her, which is just an amazing, wonderful podcast to listen to. Anyway, a few months ago now, we had a Warren Buffett Berkshire Hathaway special edition, wherein I said that Carol Loomis wrote Warren Buffett's letter to investors every year, the very famous letter that comes out with his annual report. This is not true. She does not write it. She edits it. He writes the whole thing and she gives him notes and he accepts some of the notes and rejects some of the other notes. But this is not edit in sort of scare quotes, meaning like, yeah, she's she's the editor, meaning she writes it. No, he is the writer. She's literally just the editor. So with that cleared up, I will thank you for listening to Slate Money. I will ask you to subscribe by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store, by leaving a review. That would be really helpful, especially if it's a good one. And, of course, do continue to write to us. We love your emails. SlateMoney at Slate.com. Many thanks to the producer this week, Zachary Dynastine, and the managing producer, Joel Meyer, the executive producer, Andy Bowers, and 
all of the Panoply Network. You should listen to all of the shows which you can find at iTunes.com slash Panoply. We'll talk to you next week talking immigration on Slate Money. Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Maggie Gray, host of The Gray Area. Hi, I'm Ted Keith, host of the SI Vault Podcast. For more than 60 years, Sports Illustrated has championed its brand of quality sports journalism. Now SI has a new partnership, one that helps us tell the stories that matter to your life through today's mobile channels. So as of today, all 11 Sports Illustrated podcasts are joining the Panoply Network with more new titles on the way soon. Visit SI.com slash podcasts for more info. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.